is talking to Peter and his church, not just Peter. But he said that uh, you are Peter, a little stone, but upon this gigantic rock himself, Jesus, I shall be building my church, and the gates of hell shall not wrestle her down. Now that was said so many hundreds of years ago, but it's still true today. As we look up to this chart behind me, this church history chart, we see all kinds of evolution of theology taking place in church history. But there was still, during all this time, a trail of blood, as they say. Because this trail of blood was the people that were persecuted. These are the people that, upon this rock, I shall be build my church, shall build building my church, and the gates of hell shall not wrestle her down. Now, I have a book here. Let me go get the real book. I've got a printout of it that I'll show to you right now. That is, book is printed in 1798. Get the book. here, very old book, but what's in the book is dynamite. Now here, inside the book, if I can hold it without falling apart, inside this book, down here at the bottom, it's John Lawrence von Mosheim's History of the Ecclesiastical Church printed in 1798. Let's see if I can get it over there far enough. Now this book has been very important to me. For all of my life. I had Dr. I.K. Cross come to my house and and he spoke for me in the church that I was pastoring. And he was looking at my history library. He was very envious of several books I had. And he had some of the books I had, but he said, honestly, I haven't read them. And I opened up this book here. And he sat down there reading that book in my library, and he said, this is phenomenal. He said, I've never read this. I've never heard it even quoted any place what you have written out and if you look in the book it's uh, I have marked all over this book written in 1798 that's when it was printed written before that John Lawrence von Mosheim it's printed in Old English so you have to be able to read Old English and know the difference between that and modern English Old English uh, was uh, basically uh, set aside in the year 1800. All books after 1800 were printed in more modern English that we have today. But there are 16 statements here in this book. Brother Cross sat down there and he said, Brother Jim, he said, I have never ever seen a better statement of faith 
than what's written here of these people. And it says here that these people, that this statement of faith, that these people, this group of people, the Paulicians, had believed this for 1,200 years. They had records of them teaching and believing this very thing for 1,200 years. Now, as we look at it here, we're going to uh, read the different statements of faith that they had. On page uh, 567, it says these honest mystics who were equally remarkable for their docility and their ignorance have received the doctrine they professed from the Italians and particularly from a certain uh, uh, order a doctor whose name is Gundolf and they maintain in general according to their own confession that the whole of the religion consisted in study of practical piety, practical piety. And in the course of action conformable to the divine laws and treated all external modes of worship with the utmost contempt. Their particular tenets may be reduced to the following heads, 16 points. 16 points. They rejected baptism in a more especial manner, the baptism of infants, as a ceremony that was in no respect essential to salvation. Do we still believe that as Baptists today? Yes, we do. So our confession of faith with these people and that would be fine. This statement of faith will teach us something in our modern world today that we have laid behind uh, and, and sometimes some things that we uh, Baptists so strongly contend for today was the absolute obstruction of ecclesiastical divine doctrines in the years past. They rejected the same reason, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The word sacrament there is something different than what Baptists believe. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. A sacrament is a vehicle of grace. Baptism is not a vehicle of grace, and the Lord's Supper is not a vehicle of grace. They denied, it says here, they rejected for the same reason the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper does not confer grace upon you. The Lord's Supper, you remember the Lord and what He did for you. You don't get anything for it. People want to take the Lord's Supper because they want to get a blessing. The blessing you get from the Lord's Supper is an external blessing, a blessing in that you are thankful for Jesus Christ and what He did for you. The Lord's Supper does not confer grace. The Lord's Supper does not confer anything to us essential to our salvation or added to our salvation whatsoever. It is not a sacrament. It is a memorial service. Number three. They denied that the churches were endowed with a greater degree of sanctity than private houses. 
and that they were among that they were among adopted to the worship more that is adopted to the worship of God than any other place all of the early churches there weren't any church houses they met in different people's homes and that's what it's talking about in almost all the New Testament letters we're talking about in the house of Phoebe or the house of this or the house or whatever the churches met in homes now the first churches that were ever church houses were ever built were built for a reason. It didn't have anything to do with housing people. Our little church here, discover the word missionary Baptist church is a very meager little church. We have a room that we meet in and we have cameras to record our services and it goes all over the world. There's a whole lot more out there listening to it than are listening here. Even though this is the nucleus of the church here, with people here, it goes out to others all over, and we feed the world. The little church feeds the world. I am only a servant. I'm only a servant to this body of believers. A servant. I am not the boss or anything else. I am the leader in teaching the Word of God. That's all. It says that they denied that churches were endowed with a greater degree of sanctity and other other houses that were more adapted to worship of God than any other place. Why did they build those churches to begin with? Well, as the churches spread all over, in some areas, water was scarce. So they would build a church house which was not any more than what would be a a vestibule with a pulpit and everybody else is outside. You come up and you see this building, a short building, that has a baptistry in it, a place to dip people. There is no other form of baptism than dipping. Anything else is... uh, a perversion of it. It is not dipping. Dipping is baptism. If it's not dipping, you have no baptism. There's three words in Greek that typify what we're talking about. One of them is rontizo, which means to sprinkle. Now, and another word is nipto, which means to pour. And the other word that, that we have the word baptism and the rite of baptism from is immersion. Now, there was no such thing as sprinkling back then. That's a very modern idea. In the Old Testament, we come up, we find out there was baptism in the Old Testament. They had baptismal fonts all around Jerusalem. They had baptismal fonts wherever they had religious services because the person would, before they would go into the service or whatever they would do, they would dip themselves or be dipped. Abraham, they say, dipped all of his servants, male servants, before they were baptized, before they were circumcised. They were baptized before they were circumcised. The lambs were baptized before they were slaughtered. They were pronounced ceremonially clean. The baptismal fonts were the reasons they built the church houses. It says here 
number four. They affirmed that the altars were to be considered in no other light than heaps of stones and that they were unworthy of any marks of veneration or regard. Don't alter. Now you have to remember now that during this period of time we have, uh, later we have, we have uh, what we call the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation took with it many of the ideas especially of the church and state marriage, of the church, marriage of the church twice with the church and the state were one, and they tried to legislate morality and all of that. And all of that, that we have the Catholic Church, the Lutherans, and even the Calvinists did that back then originally. They came out of Catholicism, and they took a lot of the stink of Catholicism with them. As simple as that. They took sprinkling with them. They took the idea of uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism as a remission of sins. Uh, King James Bible in Acts 2.38, without mistaking, the Church of England believed in baptismal regeneration. And they were baptized for the remission of sins, not because of the remission of sins, and that's why it's translated that way. It should be translated, you're baptized because you have received the remission of sins. Baptism is one of the first things you can do after you become a child of God. You don't get, you're not baptized to become a child of God, you're baptized because you are a child of God and because you want to follow the Lord in the baptism. They affirmed that the altars were to be considered in no other light than heaps of stones and were therefore unworthy of any marks of veneration or regard. They started building these big churches, the Catholic Church then, and then even the, uh, the Protestant churches later. And by the way, Baptists are not Protestants. Baptists are Baptists. They always protested the Catholic Church, but they didn't come out of the Catholic Church, except in some cases. Many people were converted out of the Catholic Church, but they were no longer Catholics. They became Baptist. The altars in these churches were, they would have some type of sacred relics around them, and, and many times they would go into these, especially the Catholic churches, and they would kiss the altar, kiss the altar, because it might have some saint's bones in it, or some saint's head, or some saint's foot, or one of Jesus' diapers in it or something. This all was, they worshipped these places. They worshipped the altar. And the Baptists said that they, uh, they disapproved of this. Verse number, or chapter number five, or statement number five, they disapproved of the use of incense and consecrated oil in services and religious nature. Now the Catholic Church began to borrow from Judaism some of the ideas with, with incense and, and with candles and so, such and forth. They disapproved of the use of incense. Catholicism took the clothing of the priest of the Old Testament and modified it, but they borrowed it. The clothing in the New Testament should be righteousness and love of Christ. That's the clothing you wear, not 
fancy gold trimmed and silver trimmed and bejeweled garments, but plain everyday garments that just cover the person of a child of God. They disapproved of the the use of incense and consecrated oil and services and religious nature. The candles have to be made out of beeswax. They have to be certified. All of these things that you use in these services. In the Old Testament, they had to use olive oil, but the olive oil had to be certified and made holy or certified holy by a certain process. All it was is light. But they borrowed this here. They borrowed it. Number six. Number six. They looked upon the use of bells and churches as an intolerable superstition. Now, I could go through all of these different things that they do and everything that they say when they uh, denounce that the Eucharist or the the wafer and the wine or the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. They would say it so many times and and repeat over repeat things over and over again. And all the time they're swinging incense, swinging incense and ringing bells. A lot of this, the actions that had either come out of Judaism or it came out of paganism. The ringing of the bells is supposed to chase away all evil. The ringing of bells is supposed to chase away all evil. The ringing of bells is a sound. has nothing to do with evil or good. Period. They looked upon the use of bells in church as an intolerable superstition, and that's exactly what it is and was to this day. Number seven. They denied that the establishments of bishops and presbyters and deacons and other ecclesiastical dignities was a divine institution. They didn't denounce pastors and they didn't denounce deacons in their real use, but these people are set above others. They are set here to the manipulation and the control of the masses, and these are the leaders, the Presbyterian leaders, the presbytery, They said it was of no divine institution and went so far as to maintain the appointment of stated ministers in the churches was essentially needless. They didn't believe in archbishops. They didn't believe in bishops as they have it. They believed in pastors. And they believed in deacons, but not as Catholicism, not as even the Protestant Reformation did. Number eight, they affirmed that the institution of funeral rites was an effect of sacerdotal avarice and that it was a matter of indifference whether the dead were buried in churches or in the fields. Now you have to remember this now. Catholicism, had it was the state church. The Protestant churches were wherever they began, whether it was the Lutheran order or state churches. And... Uh, 
And it was a very holy thing for a person to be buried in the floor of the church or outside of the church. Now, as churches came to America and different places in the world, Baptists were very, it was very difficult for Baptists to get a foothold in America and even build a church because there was no freedom of religion in America to begin with. If it hadn't been for the Baptists fighting for freedom of religion in America, we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have the First Amendment. We wouldn't have the Second Amendment either. Funeral rites. The Catholic Church invented purgatory. If you look back here, purgatory was invented in the uh, 700s. And purgatory was a way to extort money from people that are left behind when somebody dies. They say, well, we have to pray your partner, your father, your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife. We have to pray because they are in an intermediate state between earth and hell or heaven. This place called purgatory, which is no such place in the Bible. Now, they began to bury people in churches and they began to pray them out of purgatory. And you had to pay somebody to do this. Martin Luther, when he went to uh, Rome, he said the closer he got to Rome, the closer he felt like he got to hell itself. And he laid aside many of the ideas and doctrines of the Catholic Church. But see, he was an ordained Catholic priest for years. John Calvin was never ordained as a Catholic, but he was a pastor or a priest in the Catholic Church. Both of these men came out of the Catholic Church. They brought some with them, but they left a lot behind too. Churches in America, many times they set aside two or three acres or four or five acres or ten acres or something to build a church. Somebody would donate the property and they'd build a church house. And then outside the church, they would have a burial ground. Now we're talking about Baptist churches. It didn't matter where you were buried in your backyard or your front yard or whatever it was at home. Your body wasn't any more sacred if you were born again than it was in a churchyard. But they began to bury people in churchyards, not because it made them get to heaven faster, but that, that was a place set aside to be buried. Simple as that. Now we have cemeteries all over, and that took place. And one thing about it, if you're buried in a, in a big city someplace, they're liable to move your body or throw your headstone in the, in the river someplace, which has been done many, many times. Number nine. They looked upon those voluntary punishments called penance. The Catholic Church, you know, you have to do penance. If you've done something wrong, then you have to do penance. You have to pay for it somehow. By saying so many Hail Marys or paying so much or burning so many candles. It's all superstition. They looked upon those voluntary punishments called penance, which were so generally 
practice in this century as unprofitable and absurd. Anytime you try to do something to get to heaven, you are slapping Jesus Christ in the face. He did it all. One time, all. Anytime you you try to call down Jesus from the from heaven above and put him in a cup of wine and a, and a, a wafer, that is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's blasphemy. As unprofitable and absurd. Number 10. They denied that the sins of departed spirits could be in any measure atoned for by the celebration of masses. Purgatory, remember? And the deliberation or the distribution of alms to the poor or a vicarious penance. They treated a con of consequence of the divine of the doctrine of, a, of purgatory as a ridiculous fable which it is there's only one way to heaven that if you call upon Jesus Christ to save your soul repenting your sins and laying your heart your spirit your soul at the feet of the Savior at the cross there's no other way to heaven than that at all. That's it. There's nothing else. I don't care if you're religious. I don't care if you've been baptized 50 times or what you've done. It's not going to get you to heaven. You go to church to seek instruction and to worship God. You don't go to church to keep yourself saved. You don't go to church to pray for somebody that's dead. When you leave this world, whatever you've done in this life, if whatever you've done with Jesus, that's what matters. Did you ask him to save your soul, forgive you of your sins? Or did you just wander through life? You can go to church all life and all your life and everything. Even in, in Catholic churches and other places, they, they ask for God to forgive them for sins, but for the wrong reason. Religion is a superstitious, what we might call, good luck charm to many people. Religious service is something you do for God because of what He's done for you already. They denied that the sins of departed spirits could be in any measure atoned for by the celebration of masses. The distribution of arms to the poor, the vicarious penance, they treated of consequences of the doctrine of purgatory as a ridiculous fable, a fairy tale. Number 11 now. They considered marriage as a pernicious institution and observably condemned without distinction all connubial bonds. Now, what in the world does that mean? It, does it mean that people should not ever get married? 
Well, God designed a woman and man to be together, and they would desire one another, and that's natural. When a man and a woman, even when you're old, you desire to be with one another. That's natural. What is marriage? It says they de declared the, the uh, that looked upon marriage as a pernicious, that means w wicked, institution, and observably condemned all distinction and all connubial bonds. Now, <clears throat> up until about 1950s, maybe 30s in some cases, churches, when you got married in a Baptist church, you did not go get a certificate of marriage. You did not go do that. You wrote your name and your husband's and wives' names and the names of your children. And it said they entered in sacred matrimony on this day in 1814 or whatever it was. And the issue of this marriage was so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. That was a legal contract according to the United States of America for a long time. Baptists wouldn't have any of it going down to a courthouse and getting a marriage license. In primitive Baptist churches today, many of them, if you are married by a, a what we might call a, a, a judge or some type of legal assistance with a legal piece of paper, you can never join that church, nor can you ever be forgiven for that horrible thing that you've done. You've asked the state to take the place of your church and your minister. Marriage is between a man and a woman and God, they said. Now, in many Baptist churches, they demand that you've got a legal marriage when you're married and living together and had children or whatever. Maybe they ought to go look at history just a little bit more. They consider marriage as a pernicious institution, observably condemned without distinction, all connubial bonds. Didn't mean that they denounced marriage. It denounced marriage by the state. Number 12. They looked upon a certain law, sort of veneration and worship due to the apostles and martyrs from which, however, they excluded such were only confessors in which class they comprehended the saints who had not suffered death for the cause of Christ and whose bodies in their esteem had nothing more sacred than any other human carcass. Your carcass is always tainted by the world. Paul's, apostle, Paul's carcass was, Peter's carcass was, Barnabas' carcass was, Stephen's carcass, James's, all of those writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all their carcasses were tainted by the world. And when they died, the carcasses rocked. I watch just about YouTube only, about everything on YouTube I, I want to see is there. 
don't pay for any other television things, and we got our YouTube site out there to discover the work of Dr. Jim. YouTube. And I look at different things there, and I run across these Catholics all the time, and there's Catholicism propagating superstition constantly. It talks about this dead saint that the body did not rot, that is sitting there in a pristine condition, still after 50 years or 100 years or 500 years or whatever. Hogwash. That's all it is, hogwash. You can preserve, they can preserve bodies that last for a long time. They dug up Abraham Lincoln's carcass, I don't know how many times, and it looked like it just had laid it in the coffin because they embalmed it about three times. His carcass was no more sacred than anything else. Even with the most modern science of embalming, it's not going to make that body one less corrupt. Still dead. It's dead. There's no life in it. They looked upon Peter's finger bones or whatever else that, that conferred great powers of sanctity upon you if you just touched the case they were in. It says they had nothing more sacred than any other human carcass. They declared that the use of instrumental music in the churches and other religious assemblies uh, superstitious and unlawful. Why did they say that? Now you go back into those great big uh, the Handel's Messiah, etc., 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 all these things, the Hallelujah Chorus and everything. They were all done by Protestant churches. And they had these great orchestra, orchestras in them, and they were all paid. And, and these people were paid great sums of money to make noise to the Lord, so to speak. The Baptist said, we'll have none of that. Now you go back into the temple service and everything, and you find out that they had music. They had instrumental music back then. I don't think there's anything wrong with instrumental music in a church at all. But the idea was the Baptists were running from one side of the pasture to the other here, and they said, they do that, we'll have nothing of it at all. And this is the Paulicians, and they practiced this for quite a while. They didn't want to identify, be identified with Catholics or Protestants, either one. They were neither. They denied that the cross on which Christ suffered was in any respect more sacred than any other kinds of wood and of consequences refused to pay to it any smallest degree of religious worship the cross a lot of people wear crosses today because they want to be identified with Christ the crucifixes they had a church one place and one time that was going to be what they called a uh, non-denominational church, but they wouldn't allow them to bring a cross in there with Jesus on the cross, a crucifix in other words. They didn't want to have any part of it. Jesus Christ died once on the cross, not thousands and thousands and millions of times. And that's what we're talking about. But many years, for many years, the Baptist church would not have a cross in, or, in it or around it at all. 
because it didn't want to be identified with these Protestants or Catholics that kept Jesus on the cross. Jesus rose once and for all and will never go back to the cross. He'll never be humiliated again. The Catholic uh, ecclesiastical authorities say that the priest has power when he says the magic words to drain down Christ from heaven and put him in that cup and put him in that wafer. For him to be a continual sacrifice, bringing him down, and he, this is a sacrifice anew. Jesus tried that, died once for all, not forever, but once for all, not always, to be sacrificed, but one time he sacrificed himself. And that sacrifice stood from eternity past until the time on the cross of Calvary. And since then he was put in the grave and he rose forevermore. Don't put him back on the cross, they said. They did not only refuted all acts of adoration to the images of Christ and to the saints, but also for having them removed out of the churches. They don't belong in the churches. Back in the, the Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, where they had the iconoclastic controversy, the Greek Orthodox Church has painted images of the saints. The Catholic Church has idols, little figurines of the saints. But what is the difference, really? Don't have them at all. Worship Christ and Him only. You don't need any other intercessors. There's only one intercessor between God and man, and that is who? Jesus Christ. They were shocked at the subordination and distinctions that were established among, that's number 16, among the clergy. And at the different degrees of authority that were conferred upon the different members of that sacred group, body, there's only one person, one type of person in God's churches that's a saved person. Now, true Baptist churches are a complete and true democracy. They elect, the church elects a pastor. It's not appointed by anybody else. The church elects the pastor. The church ordains pastors, there are and the church ordains deacons. No other group, ecclesiastical group, has any power other than a New Testament church. And belonging to a New Testament church is one of the most sacred things that can ever happen to a person in this world. It's a sacred body. Because Jesus Christ, it's a double-blooded body. He died for all men and he died especially for his church. And the body of Christ the family of God and the church are different entities as we've studied in church history. The writer here says, when we consider the corrupt state of religion in this country and particularly in the superstitions, notions that were generally adopted in relation to outward ceremonies, 
and the efficacy of penance and the sanctity of the churches, the relics and the images, it will not appear surprising that many persons of good sense and solid piety running from one extreme to another fell into the opinions of these mystics, is what they call them. They call them mystics because they were spiritual. They considered the most sacred the spirit and the soul of man. The body is corrupt. They considered most sacred the, the spirit and soul of man. Nothing in this world can get you into heaven. Physically, cannot buy it. Physically, you cannot work your way there. Physically, you cannot thank your way there. These things that these people believed were very important then in those times. And it, we need to understand why we believe what we believe today and where it came from. Where it came from is the Bible. Where it came from is the practices of the early churches. Our Father, we send this message out for your honor and glory. Please use it wherever it goes. Not to confuse, but to really make people understand why they believe what they believe and what they believe. Please forgive me where I fail you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.